Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. We want to take you now to Greenwich Economic Forum that kicked off today. Bloomberg's Wall Street Week anchor David Weston is now in a conversation with Ray Dalio, Bridgewater Associates founder and CIO mentor. So if you look at um, everything that is happening, it, it, it falls into one of those five categories. Whatever we'll talk about and whatever others will talk about will fall into those categories. And then it's the interactions of those categories that creates the dynamics. So for example, if you have um, a, a, a debt situation that's problematic and you have um, the sort of irreconcilable gaps um, that exist between, let's say, the left and the right who doesn't follow things, may not follow the rules, you have a dynamic that is a lot of tension that produces those conflicts. So that's why those five. So I want to keep that in mind. There are those five. There's the interactions between those. And that's what we're going to talk about. And it's, and it's very helpful. And it also accounts for almost everything in the news, everything we covered, with the possible exception of Taylor Swift. I'm not sure you covered Taylor Swift in there. But let's start with the first one there, the, the debt, and particularly sovereign debt and borrowing. Sovereign debt. Right now, today, one of the big issues in the news is the yield on the tenure. We're up at 4.7, something that we haven't seen since 2007 or so, because of, in part, I suspect, a lot of borrowing and more to come from the from the federal government. So where are we in the cycle right now? Where are we, where does the 10-year yield want to be, given where we are? Okay, um, there are two things, a few things, that determine where the 10-year yield is going to be. Um, the first is the basic inflation rate. Then there's the real interest rate on top of the inflation rate. Because the challenge, and I'm just dealing with mechanics here, I'm trying to explain the mechanics. Um, you have to have an interest rate that is high enough that it is good for the lender, for the creditor, but not so high that it is detrimental or unacceptably detrimental for the debtor. So you see the real interest rate move around. Okay, when you have the real interest rate very low, like we had when nominal interest rates, nominal bond yield was less than 1%, and real bond yields were one and a half, one and three quarters negative, that's free money. And what that free money does is everybody goes in and they borrow and buy things, and you create a tilt that's unhealthy. So what you've seen now is, is a shift. So let's put that in perspective. Um, well, before I put it in perspective, I want to get to the other factor that I men mentioned. Related to that is the supply and the demand for bonds. In other words, we have to sell a certain amount of government bonds. And then there are buyers of those bonds. And the buyers of those bonds look at how attractive they have been. So let's look at that picture now. 
So if you take, uh, let's say, the inflation rate, and what do you think is a sustainable inflation rate, which is um, somewhat debatable, I think that something in the vicinity of a 3.5% inflation rate could be higher than that, not much chance of much lower than that. Let's use that as an example. So that's not 2%. That's not two percent, but that suggests the Fed is not going to for get to a variety work. of for mm -hmm. a variety of reasons. We can get into why right. that dynamic has to do. Partially, it's because of the supply demand issue anyway. So we'll get into that in a second. But you take let let's let's say that three and a half percent, and but there's always wiggle room. Maybe it's three percent. It doesn't look like two percent to me without a lot of pain. I mean that's also why. We, where the Fed is having its interest rates where it is, like when you get in the neighborhood of 2%, we can talk about 2%, but it's, it's okay. But let's take that three and a half, okay? Now you have to have, in my opinion, something like, in a normal policy, a one and a half percent real rate, okay? So now that gets you up to a five-ish number, okay, for, for the bond. That is maybe something like equilibrium if you don't have, if you have a normal supply-demand situation. Um, we have a, an abnormal amount of supply-demand situation in that the quantity of debt that we have to sell, the government has to sell, um, is a lot. It remains a lot. And uh, the buyers are less inclined to buy the debt for a variety of reasons. First of all, all the buyers of bonds um, have gotten whacked. Okay, so if you look around the world, who are those buyers of bonds, how much bonds did they have, and how whacked did they get? Um, they are banks. Um, that's what the, the issue of the bank. Um, they are central banks. Central banks have lost a lot of money, so there's a certain dynamic there that maybe I should explain. Um, well, well, what happens is when you lose money and you have a negative net worth in the central bank, do you capitalize the central bank or do you not capitalize the central bank, which is a conversation, but there's that. And then there are a lot of uh, foreign buyers, the Japanese and so on have bought a lot, and so that there is lots of losses. And then there are concerns, deep concerns about the finances that we're looking at. And then beyond that, also, this uh, geopolitical war has caused some of the countries that bought that to bought buy the bonds and the big holders of the bonds to feel that they might get sanctioned by holding those bonds. So we sit at a moment in those bonds that it would seem that something like a 5% rate and, and there's nothing precise about that, but in that neighborhood, um, you know, would be maybe about right. Well, it sounds with, like the risk well, is the upside of the five percent. With the up risk higher, right. okay. With the risk higher, meaning because this supply demand picture, we have to watch this closely. When I put together the the supply, which we know, and then you take the demand, uh, I, I find an imbalance. And with that imbalance, um, then you're talking about other numbers. And the nature of the problem is also sort of a self-reinforcing problem. Because when you have losses, how do you deal with the losses? Right now, um, the world is overlong. Portfolios are overlong. Sovereign wealth funds, reserves, and so on are overlong. 
bonds, generally. There's a lot of them. That's somebody's asset. And at the same time, um, the U.S. bonds are a larger percentage of everybody's portfolio because the dollar is the world's reserve currency. So when you choose to save in dollars, when we say a reserve currency, that means you own that debt. And when you're owning so much debt, that creates also a supply-demand vulnerability. I'm sorry for the long-winded explanation of the mechanics, but I th what I'm, my goal is to sort of pass along the, the calculations and the mechanics so other people can think about it that way rather than me just say that I think the bond yield's going to be I remember level. once at a Berkshire Hathaway meeting I went to uh, in Omaha, uh, Warren Buffett was asked, if you need to know one thing 10 years now, what would you want to know? He said, the yield, you yield on the 10-year. That's he right. Said, That's the one thing I want to know. So it's, it's something we need to understand. But what does that mean for the growth in the economy? Let's well, assume your assumptions are all right that we are there. What does that mean? Can we have high rates and still have high growth? Yes. Uh, I'm going to answer that, and I'm going to also throw in then, when you're looking at other asset classes, the reason uh, Warren said that is because um, that becomes the return that is the risk-free return from which the expected returns of other asset classes are compared. And so when we look at equities, what we say is, what's the expected return of equity? So we look at its yield, okay, just to cut through it quickly. It has about a 5%, 5 or 6% expected return. And because of that, the, um, that bond yield is a challenge for the equity markets, right? Okay, so then we've covered uh, that, and then we can get into credit spreads and other things, but that's why the 10-year um, uh, is, is important. Uh, what was your question again? My question is, what does this mean for growth, economic growth? For growth, I mean, okay. Another way to put for it growth, is, are we about happened, to break it? Are we about to break happened, the economy? What's happened is that the government got into debt, so the private sector would be relieved of debt. And that's the essence of what's going on. So uh, in other words, what they did um, in COVID and beyond is to send out a lot more checks than there were losses in income from businesses and so on to, to have a lot more money. And as a result of that, the private sector is doing uh, a lot better and the government sector is the problem in terms of taking that on, in terms of balancing that. That's just the mechanics of what's going on. What happens is, as you raise the interest rate, then, of course, you have to ration credit. Okay, that's that, you, you, either, you know, one way or another if interest rates go up. And that rationing of credit means that it slows the, um, the demand. So we're having this slowdown happening in a rel relatively orderly way because, let's take the household sector. The household sector's balance sheet has been better, improved much better than it was before. And then incomes with low unemployment rate and relatively high com uh, compensation increase have done very well. Plus there was this inventory of money that was large and it is and it is going down. 
So what we see is a natural slowing, that there should be a significant slowing in the demand as that, as that interest rate then passes through. And that's what, we see, that's what we see in the economy. It's a natural slowing, but it was given more than a little shove by the Fed. I mean, it's they a, raised it's, the it, interest rates quite a bit. If, is it a false choice between, on the one hand, curtailing inflation and getting robust growth? Because it looks right now that the Fed is consciously saying, we need to slow things down to deal with inflation. But it really is going to hurt growth. Well, it also is this supply-demand government debt problem. Yeah. OK, let's be clear that we have a government debt problem. We have a major government debt problem. So if you just continue adding and, what, and the debt continues to rise, what happens in this classic cycle is that the debt service squeezes out consumption more and more. We can see that beginning to happen in the government because the debt service as it rises then starts to squeeze out other areas and there are not many discretionary areas so you extrapolate that. And then there's the big issue that could exist and there's a big risk of it which says there's a selling. If we have the selling of those bonds then um, we the whole supply. It's not the new amount that matters, it's the whole amount that matters. So given all of that analysis and understanding we now have, how do we make some money? You're an investor. So where do you put your money in that world? Well, uh, I, I want to say uh, I'm going to answer in, 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 in two ways. I'm going to say that uh, first, there's a saying in the markets, he who lives by the crystal balls he who lives by crystal ball is destined to eat ground glass. <laughs> okay. What I mean is, um, what you don't know is very important relative to what you do know. And for that reason, understanding how to properly balance and diversify a portfolio, um, and that diversification should be uh, countries, currencies, and asset classes, is something that's important. For most investors to make tactical decisions is not going to be the best thing they can do. They're going to, they'll, they'll do that badly. And, um, and, and when you come to conferences like this, you will get different points of view. Right. But unless you actually have a system and you mechanize, and, and we put hundreds of millions of dollars, <laughs> lots of money, maybe a billion dollars, I don't know, into doing a technology and so what to try to get an edge. Um, so, number one is respect what you don't know and know how to diversify well. Because diversifying allows you to reduce your risk by up to 80% without reducing your income, without you reducing expected return, if you know how to do that well. Okay, um, then I think then what you have to do is you have to look at the relative appeal of asset classes. So when I go through that calculation, the relative um, um, cash now has a relatively attractive um, appeal. Um, you know, sort of people, um, when I said cash is trash, and that got a lot of attention. But that's when cash was nil. Okay. Now, when you look at the expected returns for this moment, cash is a relatively attractive asset class at this moment. It's not just attractive because um, it has a relatively decent, decent, not great, but decent expected. In other words, it has something like a 1.5% real return, okay, not bad, and not bad in comparison to the other things, and it doesn't have price risk. 
So it looks relatively attractive, but let me follow, let me complete the answer before you, because <laughs> I see you're pulling at the bit. Um, um, and, but then also, I think in this environment, and, and given the whole picture of all the things with, at, at work, there are three things that I look at as to where, where to invest. Um, I want uh, sound finances. So I look at income statements and balance sheets of countries. I want to invest in countries that where they earn more than they spend, and they have good more assets than liabilities. Okay. Second, I don't want to have where there's a lot of internal conflict, because the internal conflict is very dangerous. We haven't gotten to the political. We're still in the bond market. It's coming. Okay. <laughs> but when we take a look at that element. That's a dangerous element, okay? And number three, I don't want to be in a place where there's going to be an international war, I don't, because that's detrimental. In history, when there were these types of conflicts, um, the neutral places actually did better than the winners in the conflict. What I was going to ask about is price risk, and particularly with respect to bonds, because right now you can get some bonds, even from some investment grade bonds and otherwise, that have a pretty high rate on them. But instead of that, you'd rather be in cash. And is that because of price risk? Because you think what the future holds. Well, I think what you think is a high uh, rate is only biased by the terrible rate that you got used to. <laughs> OK? So if you take, let's say, the real rate right now, you're looking at now uh, close to a 2%, roughly about a 2%, which isn't bad. Uh, but it is, in a historical sense, it isn't great either. Great is a, like 4%. But it's not bad, and, and so I just want to be clear. And then you have the price risk. So let me ask about equities. Uh, from everything you've said, it doesn't sound like risk assets are really attractive. But let me draw from your fifth force, and that is innovation, creativity, AI. Is there an exception right now in the marginal allocation of equities when it comes to big tech for AI? Yeah, it, uh, this, in my opinion, is going to be a, a super huge impact. Uh, general day AI and so on. I won't get into all the reasons why, um, but I, I think it's going to be an impact. Then there are those who are doing it, and then there are those who are going to use it. I think a lot of those who are doing it and inventing are in a bubble. I mean, they're, they're very expensive, and they themselves will be disrupted by others. It's, it's the nature of that beast. So it's very, very difficult at these prices and so on to do that. Those, that. those companies that are really knowing how to use it and to gain competitive advantage uh, will, will do well. Generative AI overall for the economy, is there a chance of letting it help us grow out of the government debt problem you had? Yeah. Because if we really increase productivity substantially, that must help us on the government debt. Certainly. Um, uh, it's, uh, it, if it, has, it can have an enormously beneficial productivity impact. For example, um, and you're, but, but it has a big impact. So for example, um, combining AI and robotics, which is a new thing, is essentially making people. And that, okay, so those people don't have to work. But then you still ha have to deal with, okay, what does that mean? We have a situation, a basic dynamic here, in which um, some people benefit hugely, you know, and then some people, um, it, it's absolutely terrible for them. And it's not just the middle class, 
Um, so give you an idea, um, there are 3,100 counties in the United States. Thir counties uh, is the smallest economic unit, a county. Um, 85% of those counties voted for uh, Republicans and want to go back to, in a sense, more conservative roots. And then you have, you know, you could see how the red and blue lights up. And so the issue is, um, as we're dealing with this, if we have the good outcome of it, how are we going to do with it? We need a real restructuring. So I think I'll, on the politics one, I think, I just want to say the following. Um, we are at risk of a civil war of sorts, right? We are at risk of a civil, in other words, what I mean is that there are irreconcilable differences, not only um, in the issue of wealth, but the issue of uh, values, okay? Um, gender issues and so on and so forth. Okay, irreconcilable, not, and there's a questioning of whether the system is fair and will work well. When you, in any game, any sport, when you don't trust the rules or don't follow the referees, it's, it's a very dangerous situation. And so that particular conflict, as we deal with this, there's only, in my opinion, there's only one way politically to do that, and that is that you have to have a very strong middle, okay, a, a political middle, uh, in a sense, a bipartisan middle that brings the, the center, not mostly, which still constitutes the majority of the population, brings it together, and then is going to have to make major reforms. Reforms, you're touching on some things like, okay, what do you do should you have the benefit of that productivity miracle? How do you change who benefits? The system as it now works is those who come up with the idea, you know, they become multi-billionaires and the others lose jobs. Okay, so how are you going to actually deal with that? Uh, I, I'm not saying that. I mean, I, I would say, you know, I know I would know that if, like, if I was president, or who, who should be president? And I'm not talking about me being president, but I'm saying if there if there was president, I think they should have a bipartisan cabinet. You you need a center. You have to have bipartisan, and then they should have something like a another constitutional convention, in a sense, of those to deal with reforms. And there are lots of reforms that need to be made in order to deal with questions like that. And of course, there's the both sides of that. The, the, um, and many will tell you, there are the, the productivity could, maybe can do it. Um, but then there's also the risks of it, which uh, exist in, in many ways, like particularly for having war with each other and such things. These five factors are going to be changing at a very, very fast rate. I, I think over the next five years, you're going to see very rapid changes in all those. And it'll be almost like going through a time warp. And when you get to the other side, I mean, think about the political questions that we're dealing with right now, the, conf, the, the debt issues that we're dealing with right now, the Chinese-US uh, relations, and the technological impact. These, over the next five years, are going to be dramatic. You took us right to it, China, because we haven't dealt with external conflict. We're mm -hmm. talking about internal conflict, not external. Uh, you've been going to China, I think, since 1984, something like that. You know China terribly well. Give us your assessment of where we are with China, US-China relations, and where China itself is right now. Okay. Um, U.S.-China relations are, in a number of areas, um, on the brink of red lines. 
So in other words, these irreconcilable differences, they're right on the brink. So if I was to take, uh, let's say, the Taiwan issue, it's an irreconcilable issue, uh, and so on. It's right at the line. The, the breaking point is if the United States said, we are in favor of the independence of Taiwan, that's the equivalent of a declaration of war. And because of our political issues that are now internally, you're going to be likely to push that because of the fact that um, many in, in Congress and so on would say, we will defend Taiwan at all costs, and we will give them this, and you could even cross that line. It's right, my point is it's right at the edge. That's that. We have a, a chips issue, and we have a technology and, and, and sanctions issue. The reason uh, in World War II, um, war with Japan, you had um, the cutting off of the oil and then the sanctioning them taking um, their payments. So um, you have a somewhat similar situation. Chips is like oil back then, and it's a very, very, very delicate issue. You have the geopolitical issue, which also is manifest in um, each of them and so on supporting, the, supporting Ukraine and other geopolitical issues which are also right at the edge. Neither country wants to go to war. Everybody's afraid of what that war would be like because it would be devastating economically and politically. So you will see um, um, sort of the postponing. These issues will remain and probably intensify over the next five to 10 years, but they will be at that edge. So you're going to see in November, uh, there will be in San Francisco the APAC country conference, and you will see President Xi get together with President Biden. But we have a political situation and so on, that's it. In China, they are also dealing with a number of big problems. Um, as we're dealing with our problems, they're dealing with their problems. Those problems um, are first the debt problem um, that has now been allowed to pass through the into the system. Um, it, uh, meaning, um, you have real estate, and uh, real estate counts for um, about 70% of savings. People put their money in real estate, and about 20% of their economy. And there was a bubble, and then that's passing through, and that goes down to local governments that were living on uh, debt and also land sales for real estate purchases. And so that's a structural issue. They need to do a debt restructuring. And a debt restructuring is a very difficult thing to do. They can do it. But it's also very politically impactful because those who are, you determine, whoever's making these decisions determines whose wealth and how they divide the pie. So you have that going on. You have a move to what uh, President Xi calls um, the 100-year storm on the horizon. In other words, he believes there's a 100-year storm on the horizon. Uh, that's the sort of things that we're now talking about. And with that 100-year storm on the horizon, you have a very um, um, autocratic, um, uh, in other words, if you don't behave well, you'll lose your head, <coughs> and so on. And that kind of environment, which, by the way, in war periods and so on, has been what most countries have moved toward or something. Um, and so that's having an effect on the economy. We have the US-China conflict itself, which is affecting what, country, what companies do. Do I want to be in China, or do I want to be in Vietnam? That's one of the things that's benefiting neutral countries. So they think, OK, if the ASEAN countries, India, and other places can be a beneficiary of that, where do I want to be? But that's also hurting them. 
Um, and, and, and then, of course, that we have a world economy which is relatively slow moving. That affects their exports. So they're going through uh, a very difficult period. So let's try to end this on a high note. Uh, Middle East, of all places. <laughs> Middle East. As I understand, you have an office now in Abu Dhabi. Yeah. There are a lot of reports about a possible deal, seems unimaginable, of Saudi Arabia, Israel, and the United States. Don't know if that's going to happen, but it looks like it might definitely be possible. If that happened, how could that transform, certainly that region, but maybe the global economy? Well, there's a realization um, there that um, not fighting and prosperity is better than fighting and <laughs> depression. Uh, and um, so for very practical reasons, if you, if you take uh, MBS, MBZ, and, uh, and the UAE, and so on, uh, there's a desire to move in that direction dealing with the geopolitical issues. Those geopolitical issues are to some extent within the re region having to do with Palestinian and so on and to some extent uh, worldwide like um, uh, in a conf conflict. Uh, so the, the movement, um, uh, uh, you saw a movement, uh, Saudi Arabia and Iran. Whoa, that's a big deal. And now you're seeing that, that line up in that way with uh, Israel. So um, as I say, there are three things that I'm looking for, right? Do you earn more than you spend? They do. Um, do you have an environment in which there's internal uh, vitality and people working together and so on? A lot of changes have been made in these places to make that really, I mean, it's a vibrant place. It's a these places are talent magnets. They're competing for talent and they're getting talent because of that environment. And are you in risk of uh, one side or another of the war or can you stay neutral? Because the neutral countries do better. So that's what they're benefiting on. Those countries are, um, yeah, they're doing very well. And there will be places in the world, India, ASEAN countries and so on, which will do very well while all this is going on. Last question, Ray. What comes next for Ray Dalia? There was speculation about going back to to Bridgewater, which you've that is you said it was not going to happen. But wrong. But I, I, by the way, don't <laughs> trust the media. <laughs> I mean, I just, I'll attest to that. I've been okay. here for a long time. Okay, uh, um, I'm with that. But are you interested no, no, in creating no, your own fund other than that? No, no, no. I'm not creating my own fund. Okay, I am. Um, I have um, uh, a family office that manages family and foundation funds. Okay, and I'm doing that. And um, but what is what comes next? I'm at a phase in my life where uh, it's very natural. I'm 74 years old, and the, no the most important thing for me is to pass along everything, okay? To pass along some of the knowledge and principles that I've learned over a period of time, which is why I'm doing this, why I'm writing the books, and so on, and to pass along the wealth, and to pass along other things and pass along Bridgewater. What a joy it's been to start it out of this two-bedroom apartment and 47 years later to build this extended family and these wonderful people who are very, very capable, you know them, um, and, and to have them, this next generation, flourish and be a bit of a mentor to them. What a joy that is. And so my objective is to do that. Um, my son gave me a book uh, by Joseph Campbell uh, called Hero of a Thousand Faces. He says there's a life arc. And there's a part in your life journey when you're, there are three phases in life. There's the first phase where you're learning and you're dependent on others. Kids, they go to school and so on. 
second phase of one's life is you're working and others depend on you and you're trying to be successful. And then there's a transition to your third phase. And in that third transition, uh, he described it, and I instinctually feel it, um, there's this, what he called the passing of the boon. Now, what is the boon? I didn't know what the boon was. The boon is um, what you've acquired that are the gifts that you've acquired over that period of time. So I'm now in that phase, and I, um, I'm going to put out one more book, Economic and Investment Principles, and then I'm going to be done with that phase. And, I'll, and so that's where I am. I'm savoring life with you know, my family, the things I like to do, and that's where I am. Well, thank you for sharing some of the boon with us today, Ray. Thank you so much. Great to be with you. It's Ray Dalio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.